into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Pod Damn America, the Gothic Socialist Podcast for Idiots. Um, hello, I'm Jake Flores. Anders Lee is here. Anders Lee here. Alex Patak is here. And I'm a spooky skeleton. Welcome to the show. That's right. Um, it is Friday afternoon, and we are joined by Jason Miles and Pascal Robert from This Is Revolution. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you for having us. All right. I like how you Ooh. said that in tandem. That's cool. Right. And we start with a jinx. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Anders, why don't you lead us into this episode as you organized this? And I'm going to hang back since there's five of us on the podcast and try not to interrupt anyone too much. I think we should go the other way with it, where if you have any thought, no Damn. matter the caliber of it at all, just start just start yelling into the mic. There's no way of knowing when anyone's talking on Zoom. It'll be fine. It'll be That's haunting in a way. That's raise how we your, roll on this show. We're gonna, we're gonna raise our hands like uh, like uh, proper school children. Yeah, like stack. a DSA meeting. Have you guys ever done that where you can click the hand button on Zoom? <laughs> if I enjoy oh, I thought it, you were gonna say something else. <laughs> point, point of privilege. Point of privilege. <laughs> if anybody does anything funny today, I'm gonna snap my fingers. <laughs> so that, Jazz hands. Uh-huh. That will be the first considerate thing we've done for our listeners. <laughs> I actually am somewhat versed in jazz hands. I took dance in high school, so it shows. Uh, like Kevin Bacon, uh, not as well as him, but I. It's actually it was amazing because I deadfully, I'm ter- deadfully just made up a word. Awful. I am awful at learning choreography. I cannot do it. I had to take dance for four years. Did not learn anything. But and I oh, hated that it was at the a requirement time. at your school. Where'd you go to school? Fame. I basically, <laughs> I went to a uh, performing arts charter high school. And as I've said before, if you are in the anti-charter movement, uh, mm-hmm. use me as an example for what will happen to your children. I was about to say you're like the poster child for what school choice does to white kids. Exactly. One hundred percent. Makes them listen to music and dance. I, I wish I could have been there for those school recitals. It was a very interesting place. to. I will say it was in downtown St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, so oh, we, wow. We did not take this. We didn't have a school bus. We would take the city bus. And I was just thinking about this the other day. We would have, you know, random people on the bus talk to us. And there was this guy who was like, um, so you'll take, you'll take ballet. We're like, yeah, we, t- we take ballet. It's like, y'all do uh, booty ballet. <laughs> <laughs> we're like what yeah booty ballet and he was trying to convince us that there's a type of dance called booty ballet which i've always remembered since and i just been trying to imagine what was in his head well at least uh, i know where your inquiries into black politics come through now come from now your, your tragedies <laughs> your trauma going through st paul minnesota st paul man i've had some horrible shows in st paul minnesota oh Banders, really where station four Banders was bullied by prince as a child <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work a lot oh uh, uh, it was called wild times oh and, 
and they had Y's in it. So it was wild W Y L D. Yeah. yeah. That's it's because of the hockey team, right? That's adjacent to the XL center or like across the street, right? I'll take your word for it. I'm yeah. From, from there. Stumbling I'm, immediately into local Minnesota. greatest pitfall. But we are joined uh, to not only talk about the political economy of St. Paul, Minnesota, but to talk <laughs> about many a thing. <laughs> With uh, the host of one of my favorite podcasts, not just blowing smoke. Uh, this is Revolution. Jason and Pascal um, have a lot of topics that I think people should. I, I really do mean this. I want more leftists to listen to. This is Revolution, and specifically more white leftists, because there's kind of a, a stereotyped idea out there when you talk to when I talk when I find myself talking to white comrades, uh, and you know about essentialism or anti-essentialism they're like sympathetic to what i'm saying a lot of the time but they're like well yeah but you can't say that around black people or black comrades because they're just not gonna get it and what i can understand you gotta talk to them like the children right (laughs) what people don't appreciate is there have been black thinkers on the left who have been dissecting essentialism talking about materialism critiquing identity politics you know not saying that uh race is is we're past it at all but at least talking about this stuff critically for a very long time uh so i just want to get that out the way i think um more people who are of my pigment should listen to uh this is revolution um clown-faced individuals yeah it's it's funny that you say that because i feel like a lot of the the heat we get at this point i don't know if pascal feels the same way comes from um, white people that don't like some of the things we say because they, I guess they feel it's it's taboo mm-hmm. um, to say some of these things. And it doesn't matter what we say about situations um, where we have faced legitimate discrimination. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I, I actually worked in the Gulf of Mexico on oil rigs with cats that were in the Klan. Damn. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I've actually been told to leave (laughs) because of the color of my skin. Uh, So I know that discrimination and racism is real. We, you know, but when you, when you talk about more than just the evil of white men into uh, understanding of, of political economy, um, that's when a lot of people shut off because there's these kind of go-to uh, phrases that people like to have so you can get the, the jazz hands at the, at the DSA meeting. And I said, you know, it's a patriarchal white supremacist society of cis heteropatriarchy, and it's just not intersectional enough. Yeah. And if then, you go and for big snaps, maybe that's the angle you want to play. It, it just, it becomes a circle jerk. Right. Yeah. So, there's a lot of, from the, like the white person's perspective in these arguments, there's a lot of like, um, like performative individuating of the politics to try to really quickly go like i am not the a bad guy right mm-hmm. so <laughs> you, you that first off you want everyone to make sure that you are aware of this thing but it gets into all these pitfalls where you're um you know you're you're conceiving of like racism and white supremacy and stuff like that as these like individual uh, like leanings and stuff that a person has in their heart and not this overwhelming systemic, like superstructural problem, you know? Well, part of the reason that these phenomena become complicated in our contemporary conversation stems from the fact that 
there has been a kind of stasis in Black political development over this period of time, which is a theme on our show that I'm sure Andrews is familiar with, that we talk about it often. We call it the 50-plus year counter-revolution, which kind of stems from the theory that pretty much after the rise of the new left from 1968 onwards, all the politics that we've seen, if not only in America, but maybe globally, is kind of a counter-revolutionary reaction against the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition. And one of the things that happens in that period of time is not only a kind of congealing around conservatism that exists in American politics, it also exists in Black politics, in that we lose the kind of you know, materialist kind of class-based analysis that had been resonating even amongst movements that we had in the more radical area of the new left, like in the 60s with the Black Power era, the Black Panther Party, who were actually Marxist-Leninists as well. But what the era of time that I like the character really focus on, I think Jason and I would agree with me, is more of the Black left of the 30s and 40s, even more so than the new left of the 60s, because those brothers and sisters were very much interested in how capitalism was dealing with working class people and how labor and Black labor was being adversely affected from the actual ways in which Black people were being denied being able to participate in the political economy of the country. So one of the things that was a a kind of spark that brought Jason and I together was the realization of how angered we were that the new manifestation of leftism that was coming about largely because of both Occupy and Bernie Sanders was being depicted as a white thing. Mm. And I had been writing for Black Agenda Report since you know the early two thousand since the two thousands, and Jason knew people who were on the left coming out of the Bay Area, going back to the sixties, if not before. And the fact that this was being framed particularly by voices in the Black chattering class, Mm -hmm. the Black liberal elite chattering class, as this kind of white thing was not only offensive to us, but we also were smart enough to realize that there's a strategic reason why that was being done. Right. Um, Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point that I want to sort of zero in on. We said the Black liberal elite chattering class. when we're talking about that sort of strata of people, what do you feel like the most appropriate designation is? Because uh, one of your mentors and someone I uh, was a big fan of, Bruce Dixon, who is, um, I think, the founder of Black Agenda Report, if I'm not mistaken. One of the founders, yeah. Yeah, he has a term, he had a term called the Black Misleadership Class. Yes. uh, Which has a a, a sort of linguistic utility uh, to it that I always found pretty effective. Not that I, you know, went around saying it myself, uh, but another um, mentor of yours, Adolf Reed takes issue with that particular term because his argument is that, you know, uh, black America is not this or- organic constituency. It's not a monolith, right? So that you're not actually leading anybody. They are out at, in it for themselves, and they are like a separate constituency from the rest of Black America. It's really fascinating that you asked that question, because one of the last articles that Bruce Dixon wrote on this subject was one entitled, Why I No Longer Use the Term Black Misleadership Class. Mm. He wrote an article explaining why he evolved away from using Black Misleadership Class, because one of his arguments is that if you agree that there is a Black mis leadership class it assumes that you mean that there should be a proper designated leader for Mm. black people in the first place that should be leading them and i think what adolf Reed is trying to suggest is that 
the problem is that we believe that black people need to be led in this kind of race relations format in the first place. We had a guest on our show whose name is uh, Dr. Zine Magabane. We got we got to be in contact with as a result of having Adolf and Tori as a guest. And she has a wonderful article talking about how part of the problem we have with how we discuss race in America is that it still comes from the perspective of race relations. Mm -hmm. What is race relations? Race relations is a 19th century concept that is created, literally created by ruling class capitalist elites to use black racial ventriloquists, if you will, to broker for black people in a period of disenfranchisement when black labor and white labor were working together during the populist movement to literally challenge Southern bourbon capitalism. So this formula of race relations was implemented as a strategy by corporate ruling class actors to neutralize the capacity of black people and white people to utilize their desire to challenge labor and capital together to come to a solution to meet their needs as workers. So race relations, even though it sounds like something that is normal and good, is a strategy of demobilization. Mm. And one of my main problems, and I think that Jason would agree with me, and I'm going to pass the mic to him, is that most of Black politics is still rooted in the assumption that we need race relations. In other words, Black people are not viewed as citizens. They are viewed as a group of people that needed to be related to wholesale with brokers or racial ventriloquists during during the puppeteering. Jason, I'd like to hear your thoughts. I mean, you said it all. What am I going to say? I'm just gonna, I'm just going to jump on the back of that and be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Booker T. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually in the. It's funny. So I do a monthly video essay. And the latest video essay is something that I've been trying to do for months, actually. And all the other ones kind of came out of me having difficulty with this, how to frame it. And I'm basically basing it off of one of Pascal's pieces he wrote a few years back about a man named Clarence Avant and the Kerner Commission report. Yeah. Um, And it has a lot to do with um, what I call the second black exploitation era. Uh, which is the 90s and the and the movies that came out of that, you know, Boys in the Hood and Menace of Society and you know, Juice, movies that I, I love and I'll still watch if they come on, yeah. but they're very much based in in the Moynihan Report and, and the importance that the ruling class felt in this cultural production uh, for Black people as the country was burning, all of a sudden you start to get... Um, black exploitation movies you get uh black news anchors you get black tv shows you know we need you know black faces in in certain places right um and i'm I'm trying to pose a question i'm still trying to figure out how to write the essay part of it as i'm compiling a lot of footage and watching way too many documentaries (laughs) about, about black film but there's this there's this uh, kind of through line in everything I'm watching, regardless of the era. That is, if we can control our own cultural production, then we'll get there. They never really know where there is. Mm. Is it liberation? 
Is it equality? Inverted quotes liberation. So, so I don't know where there there is because by the time we get to the nineties, fuck that. By the time you get to the eighties, uh, the mid to late eighties, Spike Lee is a black man who is controlling the cultural production. But what does it mean when an upper middle class cat is making movies that um, reinforcing underclass ideology? So who 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 is really controlling um, this level of production? Go ahead, Pascal. Just to clarify, what is underclass ideology? Yeah. If you guys don't are familiar with the concept, underclass ideology is basically a, a term of thinking, and it comes about in the late seventies and early eighties about poor black people, inner city black youth, and it's it promotes the idea that poor black people are not poor because of a failure of capital capitalism. They are poor because they are culturally defective. And they are so culturally defective that they are unable to be integrated into the normal function of Amer- a normal American normal American economy. Now, underclass ideology was not only something that was being touted by conservative whites and conservative Black voices, liberal Black academics were, were using this as a rationale for some of the worst in neoliberal policies like mass incarceration, welfare reform, and all of the other horrible Clintonian policies that come about in the 90s comes out of this whole period of time where it's convenient for, and you guys are leftists, so you know, the pivot to neoliberalism that starts in the 70s that goes throughout to the 80s to start to rationalize poor Black people who are surplus redundancy, mm-hmm. not exclusively surplus mm-hmm. redundancy, but who are disproportionate t- to being dysfunctional and unable to be solved in terms of their problems. And it becomes convenient because now you can start doing things like building prisons instead of actually building union jobs to facilitate a means of disposing of this problem population and what's what's also what's really important about that era and i know that you guys want to get to some questions about like law enforcement and and things like that but what's really important about that era is as there's certain gains black people sorry goddamn bill collectors um as there's certain (laughs) gains for real as as there's certain gains uh black people are starting to get through uh, the passages of of the civil rights laws and housing laws uh, black people are starting to get into to more union jobs there's, there's now we're getting to the trend of deindustrialization, so we're just we're losing more and more jobs as well, and also when you had um, and I talk about this in the last video essay we did, welcome to the Terradome, when you get to the kind of final migration of Black people towards you know during the the forties, mm-hmm. the move west, places like L.A have so many uh, i think it's the number two place for car manufacturing in the country that really? yeah but not everybody that moved over got a job uh, right yeah. so you also have a subset of and that's this, what you mean by surplus population yes yeah right. so, so the, first of all they're leaving the south because you've fordism right so you have mm-hmm. now uh the job no longer needs as many hands you've you've uh, mechanized farming consolidation and shit like that well well it's just it's you, you have uh autom- auto auto sorry i can't automation. talk right now automation <laughs> you have automation now in certain uh farming industries that you didn't have before so people need work you start going where work is it's always going to be in major metropolitan areas where you have uh an in, in industrial sector right 
These people move to these industrial sectors, LA, the best industrial sector, because it never had the specter of, of segregation like the South. Mm. It had it over the right. years, but it ain't Mississippi by any stretch of the imagination, especially for black people. So by the time these cats get to LA, you have one part of the community that is integrated into this workforce. They do get some of these jobs while they have it, but you have another part that's living off of the system. So as you have white flight coupled with industrial flight, that hurts the tax base, the municipal tax base. So now you can't really pay for a lot of these programs. Compound that with the fact that around 70, 71, or 70, I believe, Reagan becomes governor. And he runs on a platform of trying to destroy welfare. He wants a workfare system. And there's still a liberal enough government in California to push back. But the seeds are already planted to start cutting back and saying things like, this dude's got to go to work. Mm. I don't care if the job is less money than what you'd get with your benefit, but now you have to go to work because we don't want people living fat off the system. So this is where we get the welfare queen starts with Reagan as governor of California. By the time Bill Clinton gets into the office in God damn it. Your car's warranty may be out of <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> A real working um, class podcaster. Yeah. Rule of threes, it has to go off again. <laughs> <laughs> I, man, I'm not even I'm so surprised. By, by the time, by the time um, Bill Clinton uh, has the welfare reform act in 96, the seeds had already been planted in the people to mm. accept this. Because we've been hearing about these people that are living high off the hog that are that are coming up on the system, they're not working. And one of the things I think that we have to really hammer home for people who are on the left, neoliberalism was a bipartisan consensus. It was mm-hmm. not this thing that Reagan created that first of all, some would argue, and I think it's effective. The really good book by a left historian named Judith Stein called the pivotal decade, where she makes the argument that neoliberalism starts in the seventies, quite, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. with the uh, shift of the federal reserve under uh, who was the fed chairman in the seven, in the seventies, Volcker, right. The Volcker shot harder. Carter was the president. Volcker was, was the fed chair. That it starts really in the 70s, in you know, the late 70s, with Volcker's policies, and that it really, some argue that it starts under Nixon with the pivot to uh, Milton Friedman, integrating aspects of Milton Friedman into capitalism as well. But either way, it does get adopted and it does go full tilt with Reagan. Let's not deny that. Mm-hmm. But Bill Clinton is a steward of neoliberalism in the Democratic Party wing, without a doubt, without any imagination. And you can make the argument that he's a bit more savage with it with the advent of NAFTA and GATT yeah. in some ways. Hope six. Well, one thing I do kind of want to go back even earlier than that is um, the 60s with, with Johnson, which on an economic level, certainly mm-hmm. not neoliberal, 
But you mentioned the Kerner Commission, the, the war on poverty. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. We tend to think of it. I tended to think of it until recently. I said that was just giving people money. That sounds good. Uh, but there was this whole managerial strata there, this whole Absolutely. Of, oh, my like, goodness. of uh, yeah. pathologizing uh, like the Moynihan report, uh, black America, um, you know, based of uh, white paternalism, basically. Did that sort of set the seeds for that sort of those phenomena that you're you're talking about that uh, hit Underclass the head ideology? Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. And also remember, you know, you're, you're setting into place programs that say things like if there's an able bodied man in the house. You know, you can't get uh, your certain benefits. So there's there's people that their job is to make sure that there's no men in your house. They're going through. It's like you want to you want to live in this housing, this government housing. We got to make sure that there's no able bodied man staying here. So we're going to go through your drawers. Oh, God, you know, so you also see start to see the separation of the family, because, again, underclass ideology starts with these fatherless Negroes just can't get right. Well, first of all, I have one of the problems I have even with that trope is that one of the main reasons why these quote unquote Negroes become fatherless has nothing to do with welfare. It has to do with the fact that the jobs are being gutted because of deindustrialization and there's no ability to actually replicate stable income to take care of the kids. So the the, the dues dip out. It's not that complicated. As a result of this consequence, you're going to have a proliferation of but you know, underground economy, which is drugs and crime. Do you think it's a do you think it's a shock that a heroin out- outbreak starts to kick off in the early seventies at the same time as de- deindustrialization is spreading throughout urban centers in this country, in this where we have people who were at the tail end of the Great Migration in the fifties and sixties, who because jobs are already being shipped out of places like in California, like Watch, as Jason says, in Chicago and the Midwest and in the Northeast and already being shipped out to the suburbs. Now they're in urban centers that are totally gutted. There's no economy. And the only economy that there is is the underground economy of heroin and drugs, which causes a proliferation of crime. And by the way, crime stats start to pick up in the 60s before the war on poverty legislation. That's a fact. A lot of people fail to realize that there's a crime, there's an urban crime increase going on in large numbers in the 60s, simply because the late wave of black folk who are coming in during that great migration period in the 40s and 50s are not finding jobs. Mm. Shocking surprise, surprise. And and again, what happens as these tax bases are moving, these businesses are moving, these people are leaving the city. You don't have the money to fund these very large housing complexes that are also massively segregated. So now you start to have these housing complexes that are extremely underfunded. So that means that the maintenance goes to hell and they become a blight. But if you're starting looking for the problem as people's personal responsibility, Hmm. then you're, you're kind of, trying to solve the problem, looking in the wrong places. And that's, I feel that's where we still are. In I mean, one of the problems that we have, right, is that a very common trope that you find in Black spaces, not only online, but even in actual social and political spaces, is that you'll hear the trouble people say, oh, it was integration that messed up Black folk. We were better when we had our own businesses. We were on our own before we were integrated. And I'm like, listen, man, before 1959, 
55% of black people in America live below the poverty line, and over 65% of black labor was sharecroppers or domestic workers. You want to go back to the glory days. There's a whole right-wing administration who is willing to take you there right now. Mm. So I, I don't know where you get this notion that there was some kind of Shangri-La that black folk were living under during Jim Crow. I call this politics romancing Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. But, oh, it was integration. And it was integration was not the problem at all because it did cause a significant decrease in the rate of poverty amongst black people to the point where now it's below 20%. The problem is, is that what black people had to do is that they integrated into neoliberalism. Right. In terms of the nature of the economy they were actually integrating into was a cannibalization of all of the state largesse that allowed America to seem humane for the first time in its history between 1944 and 1971, which was the age of Ford's expansion because of the New Deal. And that, the, that, that largesse basically shut down at the period of time in which Black people for the first time are able to slow, slowly and more more slightly enter into a functioning capitalist America. Well, that, yeah, that brings me to something else I wanted to ask you guys about, which is uh, the specter of black capitalism. Um, if you'll bear with me, I have a shaggy dog anecdote about this. I was uh, living in DC for the past couple of years, just moved back to New York. But uh, two years ago, I was volunteering for Janice Lewis George, who was a city council. Uh, now she's in the city council, but she was challenging uh, Brandon Todd, who was part of like, the D.C. Green Machine, um, which is Mayor Bowser's sort of uh, political coterie. And he, he was basically her her one of her uh, designees in a way. And um, we were challenging him. And on Election Day, it was at the poll site. And his one of his volunteers was a woman who had a T-shirt on that said Black Wall Street. And that was kind of took me by surprise in a way, because I had always thought. And of course, that's referring to Tulsa in 1921. Tragic event uh, of, you know, uh, uh, black capitalism being burned and brutalized and uh, just murder. Um, And I had always thought of that as like, well, that's part of the hidden uh, history that only radicals know about. That's you know that they don't teach you in the liberal classroom. But it, it, it occurred to me that a lot of people take that example and go in a completely different direction with it. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to win a debate with this woman on really anything. Uh, but what do you say to people who who use who, who look at the example of Tulsa as something we have to to not just sort of abhor, look back on in in terror, which is it was, but also um, sort of use it to romanticize black capitalism. What, what, how do you address that? Kudos to the Richard Nixon and his administration for implementing black capitalism as a strategy to neutralize uh, black radical politics. It worked so well that it was carried on through every administration since then, and it's still a mainstay of black politics to this day. It's the most consistent policy of every presidential administration since Nixon towards the black people is to support black capitalism. That's a fact. I wanted to ask a question about uh, your opinion on like, I think this plays into this because when you were talking about underclass theory and how it operates, I was thinking a lot about like the idea of like black excellence, which is a thing I'm not entirely sure the exact definition of, but there's just this concept of like, it's me, it's me, the, right, it's the, this is revolution podcast. Uh, it's excellence. 
but like this concept of holding up like these sort of uh people that achieve a lot from the black community as examples of i, I want to let know. jason hit this one out of the park i'm gonna sit back <laughs> i don't know i'm gonna hit out of the park man I, my, head, my head is in a very it's in a different place it's not a, it's not pascal is always on like hot take <laughs> pascal comes out of law right uh, so he can talk to you like i'm going to trial and i have to say the thing that's going to woo the jury i'm i'm more boring and cerebral uh, if you look at the 70s as the era especially let's just talk pop culture production right um some historians refer to this era in cinema and tv as the super spade era whoa or super negro Right, Superfly, Shaft, um, and then as we get to the Reagan '80s, you get into the Cosby era, and Cosby had kind of been um, working on this project from jump. Right, he is Black excellence personified, mm. and the only thing that really ruins that is his horrible drugging and raping problem. But if you think about the symbol that the image that he was creating for himself as the wonderful husband, um, he was a bit of a philanthropist as far as actually funding some early uh, black movie projects. I think he was one of the early funders, even in sweet, sweet back. Did you know he's Uh, responsible for there being black stunt people in Hollywood? yeah. 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 Bill, Bill Cosby again, this is black excellence personified. I'm always watching Bill Cosby and I'm thinking, no way does this guy do his own stunts. <laughs> That's got to be somebody else. Another guy with <coughs> sweater they have to bring out. <laughs> but but like, like, think about a person that who can you think of who's had a career as long as Cosby, that high as long as Cosby, from the late 50s, early 60s, literally up until the allegations really derailed mm. him in the last maybe five, six years, he's been an A-list top tier celebrity for some time. And when we look at the idea of black excellence, he gave you the roadmap and the imagery of what it is. And also we have to remember that black people are now uh, after the, uh, the Johnson administration are starting to get integrated into uh, the middle class as well. 1973 Ebony magazine uh, in August of 73. And and for the listeners, you can go on Google and Google actually has all the Ebony magazines in the archive and they have a whole edition on the black middle class. And it was one of the more fascinating reads. Me and Pascal talked about this ad nauseum. Because the article, some of them are like Marxist critiques of how this may play out, especially in urban centers where Black people were being integrated into the government jobs. Mm-hmm. So they had an aligned voting block with the people that were receiving government assistance. This was very different from the Sun Belt states, places like Atlanta, who has their first Black mayor, but he's bringing in private industry, Coca-Cola, the new airport. But you have black people being integrated into a private class. They care not 
about the lower class. They're not aligned voting wise. So for me, black excellence really starts in the mid 70s. And there's a a perfect image of it by the mid 80s. Um, Again, Ebony Magazine does another issue on the black middle class. What year was that, Pascal? 87? 87. And we never really left the idea of, of black excellence, right? It's, it's black capitalism at its best. Yeah. And I will say this is my heart was broken watching your uh, video essay. On where Cosby. You, uh, not a, yeah. the more hero, Bill Cosby. <laughs> <laughs> at one, one, one point he may have been, but uh, one of my other heroes, John Singleton, uh, who made one of my favorite movies growing up? Boys in the Hood. Hood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. You're gutted. gonna really. Oh man, you're gonna you're gonna hate me. I'm I'm getting ready for because <laughs> this next thing is talking about that whole era where you go from uh, the '80s. Black people kind of disappear because people have to keep in mind that the '70s black exploitation era was really a way to help out uh, the failing movie studios who were dealing with the Mm. fact that ticket sales were down on a whole nother level because TV programming had gotten fabulous over the years. And as TV programming got better, people weren't going to the movies anymore. And also Hollywood was investing in these massively large budgeted, uh, opuses that just weren't selling tickets. So once Melvin Van Peoples turned a massive profit with sweet, sweet back, I think it was a $500,000 budget and a $26 million uh, uh, gross, then they showed them the way. Small budgets are going to get you big returns on these race movies. Mm-hmm. And once the race movie era was over, which was, which was relatively quick because there was such a massive pushback from the NAACP. Um, the NAACP has pushed back on Hollywood literally since uh, uh, Birth of a Nation. Um, and the influence got large enough where it was like, okay, well, you, you can't do these super spade movies anymore because we literally have people now in the studio that, that don't want to do uh, these, these super, super Negro movies anymore. And then you start seeing black people integrated into cinema, um, maybe playing neoliberal versions of the super spade role with a white counterpart. So look at a movie like Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. And, and think of uh, Danny Glover, who probably would hate me saying this out loud. <laughs> um, but uh, he is he, a comrade. He is. Clear, he is. Yeah. He is. And I, I've actually met him in real life. He probably oh, hate really? me saying this out loud. But, uh, uh, you know, he's neoliberal shaft in mm. Lethal Weapon. He's still a bit of a super Negro in Lethal Weapon, um, as most cops are. Um, but uh, he's more professional. He, again, is pissing black excellence uh, in that film as, as well. So um, go ahead, Pascal. I was going to go down another rabbit hole. No, I mean, black excellence is basically a lifestyle manifestation of black capitalism for black people. That's basically what it is. It's a lifestyle manifestation of an attempt to sell a certain type of demonstration of black success to a community that faces a challenge in neoliberal capitalization, neoliberal, neoliberal, neoliberal capitalism, in which they are disproportionately being rendered to poverty, but because in the era of Obama, we can say that, look, we have arrived, that kind of shiny object type of dangling of the new Black excellence in the face of this community is supposed to be some kind of ideological salve for the fact that capitalism is still disproportionately cannibalizing them 
in a way that is rather atrocious. So it's 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 kind of like one of these you know low grade racial psyops that you see within the black community all the time, within black communities all the time. You also about, get the rise of the million dollar athlete in the eighties as well. Right. With I mean, like there's Michael a period Jordan. of hyper capitalization of black cultural production that kicks off in the eighties. Like in the seventies, we start. We have black exploitation movies. We have soul music. We have R and B. We have Soul Train. You know, we have funk. We have all that stuff. But in the eighties, there's this hyper capitalization. We have multi million dollar athletes. We have black films. You have start. You have new forms of black music. Music videos. You have hip hop. All of this new black cultural production is being hyper capitalized. Also, at a time of massive right wing retrenchment around Reaganism, and also at the same time where there's a need to perpetuate this underclass ideology that justifies policies that you know basically shift large numbers of black people into prison and incarceration. So it's a toxic blend of a cocktail that creates the perfect storm to a position where finally when Obama comes about, we can use this black excellence trope to give us a first neoliberal black president who really doesn't do much for black people who lose 35% of their wealth during his tenure. And at the same time becomes a total avatar for Wall Street largesse by bailing out the banks while most of Americans are left with their, you know, and I think we have to keep in mind, too, during the 80s, you do have, again, you have this growth of black millionaires and not just in the entertainment field. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Anders seeing the black Wall Street shirt, one shirt I've seen a few times at different protests is somebody with a shirt that just says more black billionaires on it. Uh, <laughs> That'll solve it. Which is weird to wow. be at a protest with that guy because it's like it's like we're here for different reasons. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Um, black tell me Jeff if Bezos will be nicer. It'd be so dope to have Black Jeff Bezos. Could you imagine a perfectly shiny but darker individual? He would, in a way, possibly be more dangerous, right? Because he can like wield. Anyone with that that... amount of money is like the maximum level of dangerous you can get. It's it's also (laughs) it's also funny, right? How people think just because you put a a black face on it, all of a sudden um, it's going to be. downright neighborly like oh it's this will be all good now we got the uh we got it's a, a racist black thing black to think because that implies that you think that black people operate differently than yeah. like they have a different biology <laughs> yeah like essentially is what you're saying like they're inherently nicer i guess mm-hmm. uh or progressive <laughs> or politically progressive, progressive yeah <laughs> the reason i asked about that like uh black excellence thing is i i really simple like probably reduction of this that i just having my brain all the time that i look at it is that like that looks like a like a, a version of the the way the horatio alger myth works in capitalism in general to sort of reinforce the stratified system of capitalism by going look there you one go. person can make it work therefore the system isn't broken all of you just aren't working as hard as this yeah. other person when in reality like shouldn't we be building a system that works for people that aren't excellent i'm not excellent <laughs> <laughs> i would like to be able to live in society you know by you definition we think? can't all be excellent right it yeah. wouldn't mean the anything. Whole pur- the whole purpose of excellence is that only a small sliver of people can achieve it. Yeah. Do you? Th- I- I'm curious though. What, what we're talking about, the, especially cinematically, that that moment, like going through the '90s um, of representation. Do you think there are like some subversive uh, 
works that got through. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, you mentioned Melvin Van Peebles, his son, Mario did the mm-hmm. uh, movie black. I think it was just called black Panther or Panther. Did, if I'm not mistaken, he did Panther. And if you watch Panther, there's a scene where they pan down and you see my house in Richmond, California. Really? Oh, yeah. And that's intentional. Um, or even like you know we mentioned john singleton and i yeah i boys in the hood is has some very reactionary uh elements but poetic justice is a working class story poetic justice is a horrible film come on okay (laughs) i'm enjoying this what was jenny jackson talking about you remind me of my mother and you're like well you never talked about your mama the whole goddamn time motherfucker now you want to bring this bitch up I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You're Drop killing my idols here. <laughs> I think once no, we get no. to the point where we're looking to pop culture to be the vanguard of the revolution, that we should give up believing we're going to have a revolution. Look, yeah. Anders, everything you're talking about right now, I wish you were with me here in Mexico because I would love to use you right now to help me write this thing so I can finally put all these images together that I've collected for this video essay. Um, I'm not saying that vent pop culture can't reflect Pop culture can reflect the political current of any time, but to think that they are going to be the 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 avatar of a revolution, I think has been one of the biggest mistakes of various segments of the left for a long time. I was just going to say we've talked about it on this show a bunch of times, but uh, we all work in art, but art is inherently reactionary. It takes a thing that exists (laughs) and it shows you it. It's yeah. still great, but it's, you know, you can't do anything with it. Right. No, it's that's not yeah, yeah. stupid, at worst, evil, basically. <laughs> like, like, okay, so if you think about, and, and I'm a musician, right? I toured all over the, the planet yeah. fucking thinking that I'm going to change the world with a song. And it's like, eh, maybe not. But when you, when you look at, like, the 80s, for example, and a lot of what the media was saying, and this goes into what, the the chattering class was saying was the problem was gang violence no one wanted to talk about why there was gang violence there was gang violence people felt because there was too many drugs i.e crack and too many fatherless children i.e moynihan's defective negro trope so if you pull up 1980s news story gangs you're either going to see brown people or you're going to see black people and you're going to see them complaining about these citizens complaining about drugs and gangs and violence. There was a lot of drugs and gangs and violence. And if you look at a place like LA, I used LA in that last video essay, welcome to the terror dome, because I felt it was just the perfect case study of a, the modern city. LA is, if you guys have ever lived or been in LA for some time, you know, it's, it was constructed as the modern city. It's not, mm-hmm. there is a downtown, but you know, it, it's so large. It's, it's a city built around an interstate system, right? It's not like Boston or New York, these old, these, these old cities. So the concentration of, of, of poverty for black people was really interesting when you look at LA because that same construction of the city kind of also built in an enclave. So South Central is definitely suffering, but also at the same time you have deindustrialization, you have the ending of the Bracero program, which was the the program that the United States had where they're bringing over um, uh, migrant workers from Mexico Mm -hmm. legally. When that ends, a lot of cats are stuck, sometimes with their families. 
it's all fucked up, but you now have a new influx of cheaper now redundant labor. So when Pascal talks about this shift to mass incarceration, this is also where we start to see sentences get longer. So you have a large population of people, black and brown, out of work, factory jobs are gone. You start to have an influx by the time we get to the late 70s, early 80s of very cheap cocaine. Mm. Crack doesn't come because the CIA sprinkled it, you know, in the inner city. Yes, they're letting all this cheap cocaine now flow up through through Mexico, which is a totally different route, right? You're getting it a little more pure. But when you look at the proliferation of gang violence during this time, it definitely comes from the fact that they now have this new source of income that's ridiculously more profitable than anything they were ever doing before. And you've kind of eliminated the industrial sector for them. So all these guys like their parents that would have, you know, been knuckleheads for a few years and then got a job at the factory, that shit's gone. Mm-hmm. Factory's gone, but you know what's there? Gangs and, and, and drugs. There's something I heard you say recently that really took me by surprise about this era. And because, you know, the, there's a great book, Locking Up Our Own by James Horman Jr., yes. which really goes into this specifically in D.C., but the extent to which even black radicals, people I would consider radical, were yeah. uh, very, you know, had the tough on crime ideology. Ishmael Reed, you said, Ishmael. called, uh, and this is a guy who, who hates the wire because he, he calls the wire fascist. At one point, he called drug dealers fascists. Fascist. He called them young black fascists, and he said, lock them up. People don't understand the level of violence unless you lived in one of those eras at that time. My experience with gun violence, I'm from the Bay Area, we, our, our gang culture is nothing like Los Angeles, but it's still a violent culture that we had. It just wasn't, this, it didn't look the same, right? But we were dealing with like legitimate <laughs> threats of our lives just because you're dealing with cats that are, are getting things they have no business getting. Semi-automatic weapons, and they're just firing them willy-nilly because you got to blow up the next rock house because it's or trap whatever you guys call it now trap house because <laughs> it's competing with with yours and these drug turfs now are are worth seven figures. So we start wars in this country for less. So <clears throat> you're you you've created these these areas where violence is highly concentrated. And for years, the police kind of left it alone-ish. They were there to fuck you up if they knew they could fuck you up. But overall, they weren't doing real damage. They were doing damage, but again, it's, 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 it's complicated because 84, the Olympics, so you get these big police sweeps. They're starting to get more advanced weaponry. They're starting to get battering rams. Um, they are definitely tearing down people's houses that aren't even affiliated with with uh, gangs i mean i'm talking about tearing them the fuck down i'm talking ripping out staircases and shit like that and and destroying every everybody's property and not finding any drugs so there is definitely a problem with police but on the same hand when you're asking people what do you need they're like we need more cops Mm -hmm. because even though their presence is extremely fascistic 
you also have real deal criminals and they're not going anywhere. And no one has a solution. And the only solution people can think of is lock them motherfuckers up. As a matter of fact, don't let them out. Because when you lock them up and you let them out, they come right the fuck back and they do that shit again. So you have, and also you have to keep in mind a lot of these neighborhoods, much like the one I grew up in. And if you watch a movie like Boys in the Hood, they don't really get into it. I don't think John Singleton had this level of, uh, at, at this time in his life, um, ability to kind of tell the whole story. But you see the main character, Trey, whose dad's a realtor. And his mom's a lawyer, but they live in this neighborhood with a drive-by shooter and a, and a crackhead lady that can't keep her kids out the street. Now, that was kind of a common occurrence in, in neighborhoods like the ones I grew up in. Mm-hmm. It was a mix of working-class cats because they own their homes and, you know, maybe quote-unquote riffraff. So the working-class cats, if you can afford to leave, motherfuckers was getting the hell out of Dodge. So if you got guys that can get out, which is also hard because now if you really want to get into it, we can talk about how high mortgage rates were at this time, um, which also makes it hard uh, because you get mortgage payments. But if you can get out, you're getting the hell out. And again, we, we, we have to keep this in mind as as there's black flight now coupled with the white flight. What happens to the people that stay? Because the tax base is shrinking, there's no businesses coming in, and that's why you see a place like South Central, when it blows up, what what blew up? Swap meets, chicken places, that's all it was. When you go back and look at that footage, how many major multinational stores blew up? I'm sure there was a few, but the majority of that shit was like a lot of cheap bullshit, because that's who you have living in the community. You have, again... A lot of uh, uh, migrant labor living there, undocumented, working in the outer parts of the city, because again, there's there's growth in the tech sector, but that's not affecting the uh, black population in South Central. So you just have so many people kind of concentrated in these shitty. The police are fucking with you. The gangs are fucking with you. It was it was just the perfect powder keg, but the stories we got from it are either it was the defective fatherless children, and after the Rodney King videotape, then it's well, it's the police. The police have been our problem the whole time. Right, certainly a part of the puzzle, but not not the entire uh... not the not the entire puzzle. It's, right, it's right. It's an economic problem that no one wanted to address and no one knew how to address. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about. In that era specifically, if we could sort of try to end on somewhat of a positive note, and maybe you'll just <laughs> dispel me of of this uh, misconception as well. But I've always been very fascinated by the uh, Rainbow Coalition of that era. You know, there's different Rainbow Coalitions, but J- Jackson's campaigns in 84 mm. and 88, uh, which you guys were around for. I don't have mm-hmm. any living memory of it, but um, my, my I had a, an uncle or a great uncle uh, from Iowa who caucused for Jesse Jackson. And this is like an old white guy with electrician missing a uh, index finger uh, who caucused for Jesse Jackson. I remember learning that and being like, well, how did that? How did what that happen to his index finger? 
he touched an electrical line and it got zapped off. Oh, you don't want uh, to do that. No, he it's the rainbow. He <laughs> <laughs> became the rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe. Yeah. You need people missing fingers to get on board. But um, that era, I mean, I, I definitely think I have a tendency to sort of romanticize it a bit. Um, but was there a potential there that we can try and kind of uh, tap into today um, or you know, what, what, basically, what are your memories of that? What were sort of the flaws? I remember the Jesse Jackson campaign in 84 and 88. Uh, I remember it as being something that large, large members of the working class community viewed as a kind of potential challenge to the salience of Reaganism. I also realized the reaction it had within the Democratic Party was not very good in that they changed their primary structure to include the superdelegates and that part of the impetus behind the growth of the DLC, which took the Democratic Party to the right, was the fact that J.C. Jackson registered two million voters, many of whom were black, and the Democratic Party was afraid that it was seeming too, quote unquote, black or too much of a race party for white working class voters. And they actually did a study on the opinion of white working class voters and based on some of the more racialized reaction justified the pivot towards the right that became the rise of third way neoliberalism that was endemic of the Clinton administration. So the Jesse Jackson campaign, though it was a moment in which many people saw as a kind of, you know, uh, 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 an attempt to fight against the worst vicissitudes of Reaganism, actually had a lot of negative blowback within the Democratic Party in terms of the way the party reacted to it. I mean, do you want to get into the Rainbow Coalition and Jesse Jackson and also in general? Because it's kind of well, a I mean, bag. I think Jesse Jackson's, I mean, if you read Adolf Reed's book, The Jack, the Jesse yeah. Jackson Phenomenon, he's a lot more circumspect about Jesse Jackson. <laughs> very critical. Of what very, he actually was going to eventually pull off anyway. And that all he was trying to do was to get basically patronage negotiating points for himself as a as a broker within the party, as opposed to serious about actually being a contender for either any primary or any kind of presidential position. And I think there's some truth to that in terms of Adolf's position in that book. But I do in term I do know in terms of atmospherics, there were some people that were that was excited about that were excited about Jesse Jackson. He when he ran when he won the South Carolina primary. I never really, I mean, I was too young to be voting at that time, but I, you know, I never thought he was a serious contender for the White House. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that with the DLC stuff, because today we think of centrists and moderates as, oh, they're, they're woke, right? They're, they use identity politics and that's true. But there was a time where they were the opposite of that. Not only were they reactionary on economic issues, they're also very socially reactionary. Correct. Right, mm-hmm. as well. mm-hmm. But yeah, that, yeah, I definitely think there's uh, so I mean, it. I will note that Reed's book on it is in 86 and uh, the campaign that I think had the mo- most momentum was 88. So he was I, I'd be curious to see if he had any uh, new takes post that campaign. But <laughs> um, but I think the, the point is important that there's a lot of potential there, I think. But there was definitely some flaws and a lot of that has to do with. Uh, one sort of central figure who and also uh, the 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 
bag, the mixed bag of, you know, progressive economic policies being sort of lumped in together with purely representational politics. So there were people yeah. coming to the Jackson coalition who were union organizers, anti-apartheid activists, all that stuff. And then you also had people who just wanted a black Miss America, basically. And yeah. it was at a point where all that stuff kind of had to be lumped together as, as just general, the general left before uh, the right of the party started cynically co-opting uh, representation. It's also interesting to see what happens when you challenge uh, power, like truly challenge power. Like, let's have a couple programs that are yeah, <laughs> not so race based and actually, you know, bottom up programs. You, you get the kibosh real quick. That's that's right. not that's that's not going to be cool for for either party. And I, and I do find that very, very interesting that I, I can't remember what was what was exactly his, one of his programs, uh, Pascal. Well, I know he, universal health care. That's what yeah. it was. Not free college was just health care, right? I don't think he supported free. He definitely wanted it more affordable, but college was less. Well, yeah, it was still pricey back then, but not nearly as bad as it is now. Yeah, but he was poor single pair. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, and and when you when you start challenging power to that level, um, power will show you who they are. You know, I don't know if you guys are Star Wars fans, but uh, they will blow up Alderaan on your ass real quick. <laughs> right. <laughs> planet was it the whole yeah, like the whole planet? It's it's a rat. I'm just thinking of Michael Dukakis in like an impure imperial uh, Star Wars outfit, just <laughs> pushing the button. <laughs> then Bill Clinton chokes him with his mind. <laughs> but it, it's it's funny because in the in the worlds that we live in, there's so many people that listen to shows like ours, and they get very very frustrated over the fact that we don't have a single payer or any sort of socialized healthcare in this country. And we did a, a few shows on, on healthcare. And on one of them, I had to go and do a deep dive on just the history of Medicare. And even before that, before like depression era uh, healthcare programs and who was involved with nixing certain ideas that people had. And initially, healthcare was never gonna be something that bankrupted you. The problem was widowed women. And, and it was like, well, what if we have a program to supply everyone with like free healthcare? They're like, that's cool, but what happens to these women when their husbands die hmm. in these factory jobs? Because people are dying at work. You know, we need some sort of benefit for them. So you start to see the groundwork for even modern day uh, welfare in the twenties within the States and it is very race-based, but, um, by the time the American medical association gets involved, which I want to say maybe he's in the twenties, they've constantly been a very strong lobby against the idea of any sort of, uh, socialized healthcare. And we were even going to get a more robust plan in the, in the mid sixties with the uh, Johnson administration. But what we have was even a capitulation with Medicare and Medicaid. Well, on that note, that, that uh, <laughs> wonderfully optimistic way to put a pin on this. Uh, we'll have to have you guys back. Cause I did want to also talk about Donald Harris, uh, Kamala's dad and yeah. his sort of uh, theories and, and, imp- and uh, influence on all this stuff. Um, but we'll have to have you back for that. Uh, but you are both going to be 
in our neck of the woods, New York City, uh, at the end of the month. Um, let's talk about that. What are you guys going to be doing? June 26th, um, Sublation Magazine, which is uh, Doug Lane's uh, Displacement Media. Doug Lane from uh, formerly of Zero Books has a new media project. And one of the first books, I think the first book that's coming out is Norm Finkelstein's um, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It. Um, Norm is a personal friend and definitely a friend of the show. So we're excited to go. Pascal's going to have a nice conversation <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with Norm. Yeah, I, every time have, I hear his name, have I you heard his rap, rap? I just start playing in my head. No. From the river to the sea from something Palestine, Norman Finkelstein. Norman Finkelstein, he says at the end. Yeah. It's just him saying his name. He gets he's like a Palestinian rapper who's trying to get him to rap. It's really yeah. hard to work with as a producer. You don't know what <laughs> angles of his talent will flourish. <laughs> Norm came on our show the first time, and I was totally sure that we were never going to have a show again. I remember listening to that. He had some uh, interesting... <laughs> Views of he was uh, I I have to say I was not quite persuaded by this perspective, but he was defending the concept of stereotypes from a sociological. Correct. And I was pushing back and I was like, I'm defending Jews against the Jews. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's wild. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because like both he and say like Adolf Reed are both considered like anti-woke or not woke Mm -hmm. but fundamentally that's completely at odds with what reed is saying like right you know you you don't accept stereotypes (laughs) right that's you don't reify them uh which is he's he's also silly right and and he definitely has had some great things to say especially you know if you don't like what he has to say about pronouns for whatever reason please go read his book the holocaust industries i think that's really important Yes. Or Beyond Hutzpah or any. Yeah. A lot of great work. From Gaza, you know, yeah. he's, a lot of great works and getting to know him has been has been actually kind of fun. Um, but goddamn, man, sometimes when he gets on a roll, you just got to be like, ah! <laughs> 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 so I'm excited to have Pascal and Norm hang out with uh, Margaret Kimberly. Oh, nice. Cool. Uh, well, and where can people find your work and, and find out about Sublation? Uh, sublationmedia.com sublationmagazine.com I'm sorry um, and I have an article in it and Pascal is working on one uh, this weekend hopefully it'll be out soon um, and uh, you can also find our work at thisisrevolutionpodcast.com you can find us uh, on YouTube and all your relevant podcast apps wow you sounds it. convenient and fun <laughs> we try to make it that way y'all are always fascinating to talk to you thank you for talking to us no problem, man. Well, we hope to hang out with you guys, and I want to know where yeah. the best burger spot in Brooklyn is. Hell yeah! I'm gonna try, try to come out that live show. That sounds fucking tight. Yeah, come um, out, we'll do We'll I'll get you. I'll get you guys drinks. Awesome. Do we have anything coming? Oh up? yes, we do. Let's plug. Uh, paid protest. We are raising money. Uh, live stand up comedy show to raise money for NYCDSA's candidate slate for the upcoming primary elections. We got a big slate. Which ones? All All of them. them. They're all getting it. New York State Senate, New York State Assembly. We have a real chance to take out some of these machine uh, corporate corrupt incumbents. 
Plus, a uh, really big guest. I don't, this, is, this is not easy getting this guy, but Jake Flores is Jake on the show. Lowered <laughs> myself to the level of doing our own show. <laughs> I'll be there. That is June 17th. Doors at 8 at the Secret Loft on 14th Street in Manhattan. Be there. Yeah, that's my only plug. I don't have any plugs. I'm back. Jake is Eddie Murphy level, man. Props to Jake. Eddie Murphy. It's huge. I'm going to Wearing to host Saturday Night Live and be on it at the same time. <laughs> I'm going to come out wearing the red Eddie Murphy suit and then nice. do my. It's material. a beautiful suit. It'll be really bad. Uh, anybody else? The delirious suit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I was thinking raw with no undershirt. Yeah, raw is the sexier oh, suit. You got to go no undershirt. I'm going to do a wardrobe change in the middle of it and wear both suits. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's going to be a great ready. 10 minutes. <laughs> you're you're going to love Jake on this show. Okay. <laughs> Putting out them leather pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you do can... that material that he did on that one too? Yeah. <laughs> right. Doesn't hold up very well. Go amazing. At you know he's apologized for that, right? <laughs> really? That's, yeah. That's very big. Oh, of yeah. Him. Eddie Murphy has yeah. totally, he said, I can never say any of those things again. And I'm sorry. Yeah. He's totally apologized okay. for all He got the but, check um... from Shrek and he looked at it and he was like, I apologize for that old <laughs> stuff I did. <laughs> I don't need to do that again anymore, actually. <laughs> dogs barking. Anybody else got any plugs? I can't think of anything myself. Uh, at Anders Lear on Twitter, uh, releasing a Substack soon. Uh, be on the lookout for that. And yeah, subscribe to our Patreon. Cool. Right. All right. Tis finished. It's finished. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>